We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. Psalm 103 says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Good morning. Uh, this is... The first and Lord willing uh, last time that I will be doing double duty, uh, leading in, in music and also preaching. Um, uh, this was not planned. John, who typically leads for us whenever I'm preaching, um, he leads about half the time. His uh, grandmother passed away unexpectedly on, on Thursday, and so or on Friday, right? Thursday, yes. So, um, so we we wanted to give him the the. Uh, Day off today, um, this, his, his grandma really helped to raise him in a lot of ways and, and was sort of a, a matriarch of the family. So it was a big blow to uh, them. So be praying for, for John and for his family, particularly for his mom, um, as they're dealing with the aftermath of, of uh, a loss in the family. And um, real quick, before we jump into uh, prayer today, I do just want to say, if you've been visiting Emmaus and uh, over the summer perhaps, and um, you've been coming here for a few weeks and you're thinking that this is perhaps the church that the Lord is calling you to sort of lay your roots down into, I would just really encourage you to, um, to look into joining a community group. Uh, community groups is, is really where we, um, 
where we try to facilitate the one another's of the New Testament. You know, the uh, exhort one another, bear the burdens of one another, weep with those who weep, rejoice with those who rejoice. Um, that's where we really try to live life as a community together is, is through, and in large part, through the community groups. And so if you feel like this is where the Lord is calling you to, to go, we would just really encourage you to, um, to look into joining a community group. You can do that in a couple of ways. We have uh, some information, a connect card that you can fill out um, out in the lobby, or you can just email us directly at groups at EmmausKC.com, groups at EmmausKC.com, and we can get you squared away. Now, with that said, I'm really excited to jump into this uh, text today. When we were making the decision for me to cover for John, uh, Pastor Josh asked me if, if, uh, if he wanted for me to um, fill in for me uh, this Sunday, and I said, no way. Uh, I'm way too excited to preach this, this particular text. So, um, so I'm, I'm very excited to get into this passage together, but would you guys join me in prayer before we do that? Uh, Father, just with um, with John freshly on our on our minds and hearts, we do just lift up this brother to you and and pray. Would you please comfort him uh, in this loss, uh, Father? We we praise you for the work that you have done in his grandma's life to save her from her sins. That these blessings. Uh, and benefits that we're about to revel in as a church were true for her and are true to an infinitely higher degree now. Lord, we thank you for that. And we thank you also for this great um, influence that she had on, uh, on John. And so please just comfort their family now. I pray that you would use this for your glory. Um, would, you, would you use this to draw John and his family closer to you and experience in a far deeper way, a way that uh, transcends words, uh, your comfort and your compassion. Lord, we also do just want to pray for, uh, for this city, um, for the, our, our friends and neighbors and um, family members that don't know you. Lord, give us a burden for bringing the gospel to those in our immediate circles. Um, Lord, let us, let us burn with zeal to see, um, to see that the nations praise you, including this nation, um, including this city. So Lord, please give us boldness to take the things that we meditate on as a congregation on Sunday mornings and, um, and tell others about you and about your goodness and your gospel. Um, Lord, give us boldness to, to speak to our neighbors, to make those connections, to develop relationships and point them to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, we also pray for um, those who hold office in our city, in our state. We pray, God, that you would use them to administer justice and equity. Um, and Lord, we, we pray that, uh, that you would save them, those that are ho holding office uh, that are detached from you. Lord, they are detached from ultimate justice. And so we pray that you would save them. And Lord, last we, lastly, we do pray also for our sister Darian, who is uh, in North Africa as a missionary, bearing your gospel. Lord, protect her from despair and loneliness. I know that she's been over there for a long time and uh, misses her community. 
I pray that you would supernaturally knit our hearts together with hers in love in such a way that she feels the true kinship that we have here with her. So Lord, let her not get discouraged. Strengthen her hands. Strengthen her knees so that she can continue uh, to, to bring your gospel to those that don't know you. And Lord, we come before you now humbly and we give ourselves over to the consideration of your word. God, we are powerless to see anything here in this text apart from words on ink, on paper. So please, Holy Spirit, give us eyes to see. Give us eyes to see the glory of Jesus this morning. Let us feel the love of our Father this morning. Lord Jesus, you are the head of the church universal, and this particular church belongs to you. So may we never forget that. Though we come here this morning conscious of many needs, Jesus, we ultimately need you. So be gracious to meet with us now. Speak through this sermon words of precise aid. Speak through this sermon to comfort, to convict, to encourage, to rebuke and regenerate and redeem and instruct accordingly. Build this church up as you see fit. In your strong name, Jesus, do we pray these things. Amen. I'm really excited to get into this passage together because I believe that this psalm is something that we as a church really need right now. I don't often title my sermons, but I have titled this one. I've titled this sermon, Dear Soul, God Loves You, Deal With It. Dear soul, God loves you, deal with it. I think we need to be reminded of this, right? And that's why we're here in this psalm this morning. It's to remind ourselves of God's love for us in Christ. And we're here in Psalm 103 to think about this because the love of God doesn't trickle out of this psalm like pour over coffee, right? It doesn't doesn't trickle out of it. It bursts forth like an open fire hydrant. So what that means is my job as a preacher is not to serve as a filter to sort of determine what you need to get out of this psalm. My job instead is to just spend time on this hot summer day cooling off in this open fire hydrant and just letting you all know that there is a block party begging to happen. So that's what we're doing here in this psalm. Now let me just say this at the outset. If you're not a believer in Christ Jesus, if you haven't placed your faith in him, thrown yourself upon the mercy of Jesus Christ, entrusted in his life, death, and resurrection on your behalf to save you from your sin. In other words, if you haven't gone all in to acknowledge his rightful lordship over your life, you need to know that that none of the things I'm about to talk about are presently true for you. You shouldn't sit in your seat and feel the same ease Wash over your soul that the Christians are about to feel, Lord willing. But I want you to know that these promises are offered to you. They are offered to you now. Right? So as you listen in, I'm praying that you would not comfort your soul with the assurance that these things are true for you if you aren't in Christ. I'm praying instead that these promises would entice you to Christ that these promises would so attract you that Christ becomes the insatiable desire of your soul. 
This psalm is structured much like a sermon. David is preaching to himself, right? And there isn't a lot of historical background for this particular psalm, but all of the internal clues seem to signify that he is preaching himself out of despair, which was his habit of doing. He's preaching himself out of despair. He's got to remind himself, self, forget not all of God's benefits because that was, in fact, what he was in danger of doing. He was in danger of forgetting all of God's benefits. So he is reminding himself of God's love, much like in Psalm 42, that popular psalm where he asks himself, why are you downcast, O my soul? Hope in God. Right? So that's what he's doing. He is preaching himself out of despair, setting his eyes on the grace and mercy of God. So with that said, let's, let's jump straight in. Look at this first verse. The verses uh, one through five sort of serve as a call to worship for David's soul. He says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. David calls his soul to worship God with all that he's got. He says, self-praise God with your whole being. And right out of the gate, right from the very beginning, he just rattles off five reasons for praising God in this way. He says, self, you should praise God in light of all the ways that he has benefited you. For example, one, he forgives all your iniquity. Two, he heals all your diseases. Three, he redeems your life from the pit. Four, he crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. And five, he satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Now, we can't drill down into each and every one of these benefits, but I do want to focus on the first two because I think they're very important. That first benefit, he says, he forgives all your iniquity. And he starts here, David starts here, because this is the central benefit from which every other benefit flows. Sin, you see, is, this, is the soul's greatest problem. So the forgiveness of sin is the soul's greatest benefit. Right? Think about this. If you have a bunch of benefits given to your soul, but this one benefit is withheld, the forgiveness of your iniquities, it doesn't matter because you're going to end up in the pit. You're going to end up under God's judgment. So this is the, the first and primary central benefit of the soul from which every other benefit flows. He goes on. He heals all your diseases. Now, the moment we read this benefit, many of us think, yes, but what about when God doesn't heal all your diseases? What of those of us who have prayed and prayed for God to heal us of our soul's maladies, which include physical maladies, right? I mean, they're, they're inextricably connected. What of those of us who have prayed and prayed for God to heal us, and yet every morning we wake up with the same infirmities? Does that mean that this psalm isn't for us? Does that mean that this psalm isn't for you? No. Even for you, God is the one who heals all your diseases. Let me explain. 
He has seen to it that your physical, emotional, spiritual, chronic pain has a shelf life. God has seen to it that your suffering has a shelf life. And this psalm invites us to praise God for making sure of that fact. It invites us to praise God for slapping an expiration date on all your diseases. And you can praise him for doing that even when you don't know what that date is, right? You don't know what the date is, but it is going to expire. I wish I could guarantee that the expiration date were today, this very moment, but it may not be, right? It may be a month or a year or a decade from now. It may be the day that you die, but it will end. And it is God who has seen to it that it will end, right? Your affliction is momentary. It doesn't feel momentary, right? If, especially if it's chronic. It doesn't feel momentary. It doesn't feel light. But when we compare it to the eternal weight of glory that God is preparing for us with it, that affliction becomes light and momentary. So let no believer in Christ this morning, let no believer in Christ this morning pass over this benefit in verse three. It belongs to you. This benefit is yours. He heals all your diseases. So that's David's call to worship, right? Now he goes on with some theological reflection. He begins to build on the foundation of his call to worship by turning his attention to God, turning his attention to who God is. Because God is this way, his soul has been greatly benefited and he is motivated to worship. Look at verse six. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. Again, it may not feel like this, Sometimes, But David begins his reflection on God's nature with the consideration of his sovereign administration of justice. He is just. This is an invitation for us to consider history. God rules and reigns. He will judge the wicked and vindicate the righteous. He will. This is who God is. He's done it before with Moses and Israel, and he will do it again. He is a God of justice, and this motivates David to worship. Look at verse 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That word abounding is striking, isn't it? It's abounding. David says that God is a bottomless well of goodness. And we don't convince him to become this kind of God. This is just who he is. He is abounding in steadfast love. It spills over. It never runs out. What does this say about our posture when we come to him to receive grace and mercy? We don't tiptoe into the throne room like he's a cosmic bank and we're making another withdrawal. He never runs out. Will we ever come to discover that his steadfast love is dried up, that we've made too many withdrawals, and now his storehouse of grace is empty. No, that will never happen, right? What does this tell us about those upon whom he has set his love? He abounds 
His goodness is infinite. We will never reach the bottom of his goodness because guess what? There is no bottom. He is infinite. Verse 9, he will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does chide or discipline. He disciplines us. He chides, but never forever for his children. He is not perpetually stern with us. Some of you may have grown up with dads like that, where dad's just always mad. That is not what God is like. He is not perpetually stern towards you. He's not against his kids. His correction is administered as by a loving father who cares for his children. He's not after their destruction. He's after their correction, right? And this is really important for those of us who may be experiencing God's heavy hand of correction right now. Maybe you're experiencing that. It feels like you're just constantly feeling convicted for sin. You need to know this. You need to know what that hand is for. It's for your correction. It's not an instrument to crush you. He intends to instruct you with it, to guide you in his love. The author of Hebrews puts this well where he says, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. This shows your sonship. He goes on to say, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. He does not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. Because, verse 10, he does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. What we deserve is not what we receive. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. We don't receive what we deserve. What we receive is infinitely better than what we deserve. Right? David is straining his imagination here. He's exhausting his vocabulary. He's forcing his sweat, trying to describe the infinite love of God for God's people. How much does God love you? As high as heaven is from earth. As far as up is from down. Right? How far does he, where does he put your sins? Does he put them in a vault where he can perhaps access them later when he wants to throw it back in your face? No. He removes your transgressions as far as the east is from the west. You're never going to catch up with them. This is the kind of thing that I say when, when I'm with my son, Jonah. I'm laying with him at night and I say, did you know that I love you? And he said, I say, do you know how much I love you? And he says, 14 And I say, no, more like a billion. And he goes, yeah, that was my second guess. <laughs> right? This is, this is the idea. We're just, we're just throwing it out there. Like, how can I describe this? I can't. I'm forcing a sweat trying to describe this. You, you can't get to the bottom. There is no bottom of his love for you. You're never going to exhaust it. He removes your transgressions from you as far as the east is from the west. He will never again throw them in your face. 
So if you're a Christian and you've been forgiven of past trespasses that you are not repeating, just drop it. He's dropped it. You don't need to keep throwing it back up in your face. You're insisting on doing something that God himself doesn't do. Verse 13, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are but dust. This is who he is toward his people. He's a father. And he knows us. This means that there is no need for pretense when we come to him with our imperfect service of him. Right? He knows that we're imperfect. He knows our frame. And he loves us. There's no need to work for his affection for us. He knows us. Right? How comforting is it that God knows our frame and remembers that we are but dust? He knows us and he still loves us. God is not stuck with us, Christian. He knew our weakness and neediness before he saved us. He knows our frame, and yet he loves us with a tender, fatherly affection. You guys, we have to learn to just get over ourselves and accept this reality. We need to learn to just get over ourselves and accept this reality. Now, I say this, and I say it like this because... Although we would never say it out loud, we can often come to believe that the truly pious person is the person that receives the love of God with a little bit of suspicion, right? Almost as if it's virtuous to say, you see, I just know my sin so deeply. I feel the weight of my sin, and, and I, just, I just don't really believe, I can't really believe that God would truly love me. And we're supposed to respond by saying, oh, wow, how very pious he is. He truly knows the gravity of sin. And sin is very grave. But what about when God steps down and insists upon his fatherly love for us? Do we argue with him? As if to say, I know that God has told me that in Christ I'm loved and adopted and tenderly cared for, but I just don't know. That's like saying, I just don't know if Jesus is truly enough. How dishonoring, how dishonoring to value his blood so little as to disbelieve that it could actually make us clean. I just don't know, right? We're not at all pious for refusing God's love because we insist that his standards are too low to let us in. That does not make us pious, we do not honor God when we disagree about his appraisal of us in Christ. When we say, I'm a worm, not even a man. Don't, don't smile upon me, God. And he says, no, 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 you were, but I have adopted you in Christ. Because of Christ, you bear his righteousness. You've been adopted into my family. I love you. I care for you. Enjoy my presence. And we say, no, 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 God, I'm a worm. I'm a worm. He says, no, you're my son, you're my daughter. And we say, no, no, you just can't, you don't understand, I'm a worm. To argue with God like this does not make us pious. My sons do not honor me when they doubt me when I say to them, I love you. That does not honor me. They honor me by receiving my love and growing in it. When they bask in my love like a flower basks and grows in sunlight, that's how they honor me. 
Not when they hide under a rock and insist either that I couldn't love them or that I don't mean it when I say that I do. Many of us here just need to be reminded of this fact. God loves you. In Christ, he's your father. Deal with it. Now, with this theological foundation laid, David now turns his attention from the vastness of God's love to man, and he, he plays this, this game of contrast between God's everlasting love and our fragility. He says in verse 15, as for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it, and it's gone, and its place knows it no more. It's pretty incredible that this is immediately where he goes after talking about God's fatherly, tender care, right? It, it even feels a little insulting, right? He's saying, you don't matter. You're not a big deal. You're just not that big of a deal. He's saying, God doesn't love you because we are just so darn special that he couldn't be happy without us. No, we're nothing. We're dust. We're like grass. We sprout up one day and we're gone the next. There is not a single thing in us that compels God to love us. And that is actually great news because it means that God's love for us is truly free. This is exactly what he goes on to say in the next couple of verses, verse 17. But the steadfast love of the Lord, so he's just talked about how how uh, insignificant we are. We're like dust. We, we, we're grass. We sprout up one moment. We're gone the next. This is who we are. But the everlasting love of God is like this, right? But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting to those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. So David's contrasting our fragile and changing selves with God. His love for us doesn't depend on anything in us, which is wonderful because we are so fragile and fickle. We change all the time. So if God were compelled to love us because of some unique or special attribute that we have, there would be no security in his love for us. There would be no security because if we lose that compelling attribute, suddenly we're in danger of losing the love of God. But we have nothing to inspire God's love for us. He just loves us. He, he, just, he just gives it to us. He just gives his love to us. And that love is fixed, right? His love doesn't depend, his love depends on himself, not on us, which means it will never run out and so this is the point of that last verse, verse 20. If the God who established his throne in the heavens and rules over all has set his love on us, it means that love is fixed. David is saying, listen, I'm a nobody. The very best thing I could say about myself is this. God loves me. That's the very best thing I have going for me. I'm a person whom God loves. I got nothing else bringing to the table. Now, it's really important we don't skip over that qualifying phrase in verse 18. We saw it, right? To those who keep covenant and remember to do his commandments. And at first glance, this little qualifier threatens to rob all of these benefits of their comfort, right? 
So we read this. We, we read that these promises are offered to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. And we all think, uh-oh, that's not me, <laughs> right? I don't do that. And yet drilling down in these verses in light of the whole counsel of God's word actually occasions more, not less, comfort than we would have if we skipped over it. Let me explain. You see, David's faithfulness to the covenant and his obedience to the commands of God were not perfect. They could not be perfect. They were proximate. We know that, God, that, that David failed uh, to, to live up to these covenants over and over and over again. He disobeyed the commandments of God. It was a proximate obedience, which means his ultimate hope and his confidence for all of these blessings being given to him were not predicated on his own performance. That's not where he hung his hat. He hung his hat on God's merciful nature, as if to say, despite my imperfection, I believe that God will number me among those who keep covenant and remember his commandments, not because I am so great or so consistent, but because he is so merciful. This is why in other Psalms, like Psalm 19, he prays things like, count me innocent of hidden transgressions. Declare me innocent from presumptuous sins, sins that I don't know about, sins that are, that are hidden even to me. He's praying that kind of prayer because he knows his only hope to receive all of these benefits was for God to show his steadfast love and mercy and grace toward him. So he strove for faithfulness to the commands of God as someone who had entrusted himself over to God's mercy. David did not know. This is really important. David did not know how God would show himself to be just and righteous, to give him all of this mercy and grace despite all of his perfection, imperfections. He knew he was imperfect. He had confidence that God was going to show him mercy and grace, but he didn't know how he didn't know how that connection was going to be made in a way that God remained just. He did not know how God would show mercy and grace toward him despite his imperfections. He just knew that God was that kind of God. God is the kind of God that shows mercy. I don't know how he does it in, in such a way where he remains just, but I know that he's that kind of God, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to place all of my chips on that. right? I'm, I'm going I'm to go all in there. That's where all my eggs are going, in that basket. He didn't know, but we do. We do. Romans 3, 23 through 26 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. How? Through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins like David's, like David's sins. He had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, that is, now that Christ has been crucified, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. In other words, God was just, he was righteous, to show loving kindness and mercy and grace toward David, despite all of David's imperfections and failures, because he would pay for David's sins on the cross of Jesus Christ. 
That's where he paid for David's sins. The only difference, this is really important, guys, the only difference between us and David is that we know that, that God's grace looks like a bloody cross, and David didn't. He knew that God was that kind of God, and he knew that God would show him grace and mercy, but he didn't know how the mechanics were going to work out. David hung his hopes on God's grace, and while he could not have known that that grace would be manifested in the form of a bloody cross, that is precisely where David's hopes were found. He was hanging his, his hopes on a bloody cross. He didn't know that that's what it was, but that's what it was, just like us. That's where we place all of our hopes. We throw ourselves on that, that promise given by the cross. Now, it's also important to note that what we find here, what we find on this bloody cross is not just the forgiveness of sins, but also perfect obedience on our behalf. That is so important. For as by one man's disobedience, Romans 5.19 says, for as by one man's disobedience, the many were, be, were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many, that's us, will be made righteous. So when we read these words in verse 18, who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments, these things are true for those who keep covenant and remember to, do his, to obey his commandments. We should be thinking, hey, that's us in Christ. That is us in Christ. He kept covenant and obeyed commands perfectly. And in him, I have perfect obedience. In him, I'm able to obey. I only have the ability to obey in him. So don't let anybody skip over verse 18. Right? And that means when we read verse 19, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. When we're thinking about this concept that, hey, this is, this is who God is. He is the sovereign God who has placed his love on you. We should be thinking of Romans 8. We should be thinking, what then shall separate us from the love of God? What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who, is in, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of God in Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So read this psalm without wincing. Read verse 18 without wincing. Don't bat an eye at that verse. You have enough assurance to read this verse with a holy kind of defiance in the face of condemnation, the kind of defiance that Martin Luther had when he wrote, when the devil throws our sins up to us and declares that we deserve death and hell, we ought to speak thus. I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? 
Does this mean that I shall be sentenced to eternal damnation? By no means. For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction in my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Where he is, there I shall be also. That's what we say. Now, in light of all of this, David reiterates his initial call to worship, and how could he not, right? So he, he, now, he now places the top bun of this praise sandwich on this thick, meaty you know, sandwich. Here's the top bun, and he's calling to worship now, not just his soul, but literally everything. He says in verse 20, Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Now, in light of all of this, I have two pastoral charges, one for the, for the believer in Christ this morning and one for the non-believer. If you're a Christian, this is your pastoral charge in light of all of that we've talked about this morning. Get to know the love of God and receive it. Get to know and receive the love of God. If you are a believer, God loves you. And he cannot stop loving you. Not because you are in and of yourself so unbelievably desirable. It's even better than that. He cannot stop loving you because you are in Christ. And he cannot stop loving his own son. You have been brought into Christ where his love is poured out. You have been hemmed into the love of the Trinity and incorporated into their love. Isn't this what Jesus Christ says himself in John 17 when he, the, the incarnate son of God, uh, is speaking to the Father about us? He says this, I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known so that the love with which you have loved me, the love which you, Father, have loved in me, Jesus the Son, may be in them, that love in them and I in them. The mission of the Trinity was for the Father to send the Son by the power of the Spirit to atone for your sins and swallow you up into their love, into their eternal love, to incorporate you into the love of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Since you have been brought into Christ, the Trinity would have to break up before God could give you up, before God could give you up as the son and daughter that he has adopted you as, he, the Trinity would have to break up before God could stop loving you. You have been hemmed into the impenetrable field of God's love. So bask in it, right? May we be gripped by this love, the love of this glorious God, the way Jonathan Edwards was when he, when he was first gripped by this concept in 1 Timothy 1.17, which says, Now unto the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Edwards writes this about the first time that, that passage really struck him to his core. He says, As I read these words, there came into my soul and was, as it were, diffused through it a sense of the glory of the divine being, a new sense quite different from anything I ever experienced before. Never any words of Scripture seemed to me as these words did. I thought with myself 
how excellent a being that was. And how happy I should be if I might enjoy that God and be wrapped up to him in heaven and be, as it were, swallowed up in him forever. Oh God, may we be so overwhelmed by your love like that, to be so stirred with this sense of your delight for us. So that is your charge, Christian. God loves you. Get to know the love of God and bask in it. And if you're not a Christian this morning and you're here with us, this is my charge to you. Receive this love of God in Christ by faith. If you want this love, it's all there in Christ. You gotta go to him to get it. Like I said before this sermon began, none of these things are true for you if you've not been united to Christ by faith. You've not yet been hemmed into the Trinity's eternal love, but you can be. You can be. This is what you were made for. This is what's offered to you now. If you come to him with the empty hands of faith, and what I mean by that is hands free from deeds to win favor for him and free of excuses. Don't bring anything. Don't bring your excuses. Don't bring your deeds. Bring nothing. Bring empty hands of faith. If you come to him with the empty hands of faith, he will pour into your hands in abundance of steadfast love and mercy. So come to Jesus. Come even today as you sit in your seat and watch us partake of this meal of communion we're about to enjoy together. As often as we eat and drink this meal, we Christians proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. We proclaim the gospel to ourselves, to one another, and to you, non-believer. So in this meal, we proclaim that we have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And we're inviting you to taste and see his goodness as well. So if you're not a believer, we ask for you to not partake of this meal. Instead, take Jesus. Take the, take the person that this meal points to. And we invite you to ask anyone who partakes of this meal what it means to follow Jesus. By taking this bread and this cup, we are inviting you, non-believer, to ask us about Jesus. And if you are a Christian this morning, please take this meal with resolute joy, right? What is signified in this meal is the glorious love of God that we've been basking in all morning. So as you take this meal, I invite you to receive it and, and consume it. Consume the love of God in this meal. I'm gonna pray and then ask for the believers to come down. You'll come down to my left, take from the bread, dip in the cup, and then you'll return to my right. Let's pray. O oh, Holy Trinity, our Father, provider and protector, Jesus, our Savior and intercessor, Holy Spirit, our comforter and teacher, thank you for bringing us into your love. Comfort your saints with your love. And with that same love, God, draw those in bondage to sin to yourself. Protect those of us who are yours from refusing your love out of a false sense of piety. Protect those of us who have been sanctified by your grace from the crucial error of calling unclean that which is clean. Protect those of us who are outside of your love from deceptive assurance. Protect those of us who are outside of your love from apathy. Draw some in here into your love today for your glory and our good. 
We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I love you, church. Come and take it. Thank you for watching this Amaze KC podcast. More information about Amaze KC can be found available online at www.amazekc.com.